So in this episode, I'm joined by Howard Iback, and this is going to be a very, very useful conversation for me because before we press the record button, Howard has already critiqued one of my most recent webinars uh, where he basically is saying, and I wish everybody would do this, I wish all my guests would do this, basically saying I got it the wrong way around. So what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the art of, the science of, and the absolute necessity of getting right your creative briefs. Welcome to the show, Howard. Thank you, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, as a world-renowned expert, guru, specialist, wait, wait. wise, we, we, wise man, on, I am talking to you, <laughs> wise man on the topic of creative briefs, where did I get it so, so wrong? I think you got it wrong in a way that is completely understandable. You put the cart in front of the horse. You put the mood board and the storyboard in front of the thing that will decide the idea. You can't do a mood board or a storyboard until you have the idea. And the creative brief is designed to produce that idea. Sometimes people mistake the creative brief as the avenue into the deliverable. The creative brief should tell the creatives what they're going to be designing. And I think that's a mistake as well. The creative brief is designed to come up with the idea. And the idea then drives the tactic. So idea first, tactic second. Now, I live in the real world. I live in, and I've worked in the real world as a creative. I was an ad agency creative for 26 years. So I know that that isn't how it always works. Media is purchased in advance. And whether we know it's going to be a TV idea or a radio idea or print, you know, above the line, that often drives what the idea is going to be. But that's not what the creative brief was designed to do. So we, 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 by necessity, we are forced to come up with uh, ideas that fit a tactic rather than the other way around. Because I've, I'm asked all the time, it's like, well, what's the difference between a TV creative brief, a radio creative brief, a print creative brief, a design brief? And I say, take all the adjectives off. It's just a brief. A brief is designed to spark creativity. Let the idea drive the tactic. So that's that was my... It was, a, it was a mild objection, Neil. I was essentially saying, well, yeah, you, you need an, a, mood, a mood board would be great. A storyboard would be great. Um, we don't always get those. But before you start there, let's back up a minute and say, well, what's the idea first? And the creative brief is designed to find that idea. That's why I was, that's why I said what I said. And, 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 you know, your words have been very uh, well received on this end, I have to say. And it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, you know, it's almost like we muddle along. It doesn't matter whether we're senior, junior, digital, traditional, agency side, client side, wherever we're coming from, whatever level we are um, or have achieved to this point or whatever it is, we seem to just muddle through briefs. It's not rocket science, is it? Why are we getting this so wrong and seem to have got this so wrong for so many decades? We don't really give it the attention it's, it deserves. You know, we, we forget about fundamentals. When a professional athlete gets rusty and is not performing well, what does the coach say? Go back to fundamentals. When a dancer isn't feeling on point, what does the dancer do? Go back to the bar work on the basics. When a musician is feeling, you know, I'm not sure I've, I've, I've got my feel, go back to scales. 
I mean, even if they're feeling on the top of their form, professionals do these basics, do these fundamentals. We don't do that. We simply don't do that. We're not trained to think this way. It's we've got to get it done tomorrow. We've got to get it done yesterday. We, maybe we don't need the brief or let's not give the brief its, its due. We don't give it enough time. We think we're under these false deadlines when we know we're not. As I said, before you hit the record button, there's an old saying in our business. And everybody laughs when I say this and they kind of like, yeah, 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 you're right. But it's true and we don't pay attention to it. And that old saying is there's never time to do it right. There's always time to do it over. And the fact that we do it over and over and over and over is also the definition of insanity because we think we're going to do it different this time. But if you would stop and give the brief what it requires, thinking time, it's not a form to fill out. It's not like an application for a driver's license or a, a job or a, you know, getting a new apartment because on those forms, you already know the answers to everything. A creative brief is designed to provoke thinking that you hadn't thought before. There are a couple of things that you already know. You should know the brand's tone of voice because that should be in your brand guidelines. And you should have a pretty good idea who your audience is. But we just don't take the time to think through a brief because we claim that we don't have the time to do it. But we always have time to go back to the drawing board. We always send the work back to the creatives over and over and over again, which tells me that this whole idea of a brief not having enough time is wrong. It's just bad thinking. So. We don't give it the time it's deserved because we don't think it's, it's necessary or worth it, but practice shows us that it is worth it. A great brief produces great work. Well, actually, let me amend that. My podcast buddy, Henry Gomez, he's a strategist. He works for Zuby Advertising, vice president of strategy at Zuby Advertising. He writes briefs for a living. And he reminds me, he said, a great brief doesn't guarantee great creative, but it vastly improves the odds. It's like, yep, that's a good point. If you don't give it the time it requires, well, you know, other experts have said a version of this. Sir John Haggerty has said this, Ogilvy has said this, Luke Sullivan has said this, John Steele has said this. If you expect inspired work and don't deliver an inspired brief, your expectations are out of whack. Mm. Is it, it's kind of it's such a fundamental part of the process, isn't it? And and it is that word process because I think a lot of people mm-hmm. almost forget it. It's, it's almost like, oh, well, I've done the brief, right? It's over to somebody else now. I've, I've kind of given away the responsibility and the accountability. I can go and now get on with the rest of my job. But it's kind of missing the point, isn't it? That you're a key part of the process, and this is one of the key tools in that yes. process. And Absolutely. It's, it's, it's almost, so, so do you feel it is a, it's a laziness thing? Is it, is it a too busy thing? Is it a, I haven't, you know, almost I don't have the permission to spend this quality time that you're asking me to spend because, well, my boss is, you know, sort of you know, in my ear about, you know, got to get on to do the next thing. There's something driving this. It's a bad habit, isn't it? But something's driving this fundamentally, isn't it? Yes. I think one of the problems that marketers face because marketers are the ones who have the responsibility for driving these projects, but they don't always have the training in writing a brief and they're not fundamentally trained in strategy. Um, And they try to write a brief without a strategy. So what I recommend, and when I do my workshop training, this is something that we practice because they're not, most of my participants are not accustomed to doing this. We collaborate. Too often briefs are written by one person. 
And they and I say, well, how many of you collaborate when you write your brief? And people raise their hand. Oh, I, I collaborate all the time. I say, okay, describe to me what you mean by collaboration. And they'll say, well, I write a draft of the brief and then I send it off to my boss, maybe two or three other people, and I wait for feedback. I say, well, that's not collaboration. That's an exercise in masochism because you're waiting for the cons com comments. So whose comments have the most weight? What if the comments are contradictory? Well, I already, we already know who the comments that get the most weight. It's the boss, the senior most person who has reviewed that. Well, let's look at that carefully. Who is the audience for this document, the creative brief? It's the creatives. It's our document. It's designed to inspire us to do our best thinking. So if you write the brief by yourself and you send it off to your boss for comments and you give most weight to that boss, the audience has changed. It's no longer for the creatives, it's for the boss. Now, what I say is you need to collaborate. What, I, what do I mean by collaboration? I mean, get the creatives involved. We have skin in the game. I don't mean the creative has to sit down with you and write the brief, but when you write a draft of the brief, don't show it to your boss first. Show it to a creative. Get your creative director involved. When I talked about my, my podcast buddy, um, Henry Gomez, that's what he does all the time. He'll write a draft of a brief after he's done his research, after he's done his reading, and he'll show the draft to the creative director to get a buy-off. If the creative director doesn't like it or thinks it's weak, Henry's going to fix that. He knows that he can't expect the creative team to trust him as a brief writer if the brief isn't spot on. And waiting until the project kickoff to show the creatives the brief is way too late. They need to have bought off on it in the beginning, long before the, that kickoff. So collaboration is the key to removing that laziness because first of all, it removes from the brief writer sole responsibility for that brief, right? If I write the brief by myself and nobody likes it, whose fault is it? Everyone's gonna point their finger at me. But if I'm collaborating with maybe you know, a product specialist and maybe the creative director, it's now a team effort. It means that if the brief is well-received, we all can share in that, it's a team effort. And if the brief is not well-received, no one person gets blamed for it. It's got to be considered a team effort. Everything is a team effort in, in what we do. So that's a way to get rid of the laziness. And when we practice this in my workshops, we break into small groups and we do writing exercises, whether it's let's write a brief together or we reverse engineer creative, which is a great exercise. And they're co collaborating together to figure this out. There's something that I don't think that a lot of people experience when they write a brief that I hear. There's laughter. People are laughing. They're having fun. They're saying, I never would have thought about it that way. You know, marketers like to think that they have great, that they, that they don't have any creative ideas. They do. Creatives like to think, well, it's all about us. It's creative. We're the, we have a monopoly on creativity. And then a marketer or a brand person has an idea and it's like, okay, that's a good idea. And it kind of is a humbling experience, but it's a fun experience and it takes a process that's hard. Writing a brief is hard. And it doesn't make it easy. I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do, but it makes it easier and it can be fun. So that's how we take this, how we remove the laziness, how we remove the pressure, how, and we build this into a team effort. And the, brief tend, the briefs tend to be much better this way. This is, this is exactly, you can tell I've got a little passion on this topic. This is, we're, we, we are learning, brief writers are learning a lesson from 
a gentleman who changed the nature of creativity in the 40s and 50s, a name I think everybody's familiar with, Bill Birnbach. He did something back in the 40s and 50s that had never been done before. And we look back on it now and say, well, duh, you know, why did it take so long? He put a copywriter and an art director together and created a team, called it the creative team. So no one ever functions independent. A copywriter doesn't work alone and an art director doesn't work alone. It's always a team. I never showed any of my ideas to anyone unless my art director partner said, well, there's at least something there, right? So I, I always called my art director partner because I was a copywriter. My art director partner was my BS detector. Well, we need a BS detector when we write a brief. So you must collaborate, put two minds together, maybe even three, and you'll get better, clearer thinking. And we learned that lesson from Bill Birnbach. Mm. The thing that I've really hooked in on there is is when you said about the um, uh, the boss's feedback, and and I've seen this, you know, and I'm sure you have over the decades, many many times. Is like, well, I don't like that that color blue, or no, that's kind of that's the wrong sentence there. It's like, well, I don't care what you like or what you don't like. We're writing for the audience. We're writing for this target persona that we've clearly you know um, prioritized and been defining and really honed in on with through lots of research and science over the the years and, and we've got this thing and now you're telling me you don't like that shade of blue well but do we get around that then by this collaboration because as you say it kind of it spreads the accountability load but does it also then just almost be a, a self-policing self-checking process that gets away from all those little nuances where you get an individual's opinion swaying everything. Because that, I guess, also could take us really off-piste, couldn't it? I'm going to steal that phrase, self-policing. I think that's a great way to summarize this. When you collaborate, when you're sitting in a small group, two or three people, you're going to get, well, you know, I use the term BS detector. Self-policing is a version of that. Someone is going to say, well, what if we do this? Or what if we say it this way? And someone else is going to say, Hmm. I don't, what do you mean by that? So what's clear to one person is not clear to another. So there's this automatic BS detecting and self-policing. And yes, we have to remind each, each other all the time that we are writing a brief to give direction to the creative team. So what you like or don't like is completely irrelevant. The brief has to be the guiding document. If we agree on the brief and then you hand that brief off to the creative team. The creative team brings back work and they can justify the creativity with a rational connection to the brief. Then your objection to blue is irrelevant, irrelevant because the brief told us to go in this direction and we agreed on the brief. Are we gonna remove subjectivity from this conversation? Well, no, I can't promise that. That's always gonna be part of the discussion, but we can lessen its impact when we have a document that we all have bought in on, that we've fine tuned, we spend enough time getting it right before we give it off to the creatives. So I'm gonna steal that, self-policing, I like that, Neil. Mm, it's, yeah, it's good to talk, it's good to collaborate. Here we go, we're doing it already. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, this is really good. And every time you, you kind of give a little analogy, you're kind of explaining this, I, I keep getting these flashbacks and i'm sure everybody listening to this will be getting little flashbacks to moments where you think oh yeah that's i did that or oh yeah that's where i saw that go wrong and, and there was one particular um 
situation, which I did have a major flashback just a moment ago, um, where I literally was responsible for uh, creating the creative brief, uh, got the board sign off. I was actually part of the management team in a large, shall re um, uh, remain unnamed organization here in the UK. And um, we took it, or I took it to the uh, to, to the agency to do big TV campaign, lots of creative, lots of you know opportunities for really stretching the boundaries, took back what we thought was something a little bit special. And yet the whole room of people who'd clearly signed off on this brief originally, oh, no, I don't like that. The number of people who said, I don't like that, or I don't feel this. And I just, I was dumbfounded. I thought, well, exactly what you said there. But it's the brief that should like it. It's the brief that needs to sign off, but not you. I just need your signature. And yet there was a total refusal because of subjectivity and personal opinion. It's it's still really hard, isn't it? And I think yeah. maybe, again, if, if you're pitching to management teams, for example, the creative that comes back from the brief, and if they kind of feel, I mean, maybe this is in ego-fueled organisations, they feel they have to kind of give an, give an input, give a, I don't know, an argument against. I mean, that must still be prevalent today. You, you must see examples of that. And that's really hard, time. isn't it, for the brief owner? That's all the time. It's easier to destroy than to create. And we all like to look at, like to, you know, punch holes and things. And if that's your attitude, then fine. But, you know, are you, are you a brand advocate or are you a brand destroyer? If you don't like something, it might very well be that you don't like it because it got to you. It, it, it startled you. It scared you. And that might be the proof that it's actually good. But who's, are you able to see that? Do you have that awareness? One of the things that attracted me to your podcast, Neil, was, I saw repeated use of the word mindful. It's a word that matters to me. I try to, I try to practice mindfulness. And mindfulness means sometimes you got to put your ego aside and say, what is the brand? You know, I do an exercise in my workshop where I ask people to explain their brand as if they're talking to a six-year-old. Einstein said, if you can't explain it to your, to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. So try to explain your brand as if you're talking to a child. Well, people are really good at explaining their product, but they have a hard time explaining their brand. And if you can't explain your brand, how do you write a brief? How do you tell the creatives what it is that you're trying to accomplish with this next campaign, whatever it happens to be? So that's something that I like people to think about. The design, the purpose of the brief is to really inspire the creatives. The only way you can do that is if you have a clear articulation of what your brand is. When you understand what your brand is, you're less likely, I think, to be scared by something that you didn't expect, which I think is what happens when, when management sees something in the presentation and they say, I don't like this. What they're really saying is, maybe this scares me. I'm not sure we're ready to go here. That's happened to me, That's happened to me before. You know, I was working on a project back in the day when I was a creative, working creative. I was working for a major manufacturer of... of um, personal and commercial lawn mowing machines. So this could be a lawn mower for your yard or one of those gigantic machines that cuts the grass on the side of a highway. And it's like huge. They were big, they were the biggest of the three major competitors in the United States. And every time we started a new project, 
I would, we would go to the CMO and we'd say, okay, so what is the one thing about this, this particular project or this particular product that sets it apart? What is the one thing that you want to say? And the first obstacle I had to overcome was the fact that this guy almost said the, said, said the same thing almost every time. He said, well, we don't have one thing. We have a unique package of features. I said, yeah, but no one cares about a unique package of features. We want to know what's really what's in it. So once we got past that obstacle, you know, I remember an idea I came up with that I know it scared the president of the company. It scared him. And he told me so. I said, we can't say that. We can't say that. It was a product that cut, it was designed to cut fairway, fairway grass at a golf course. So it was a professional quality machine. So the fairway would be cut in such a way that when the ball landed on the fairway, it would sit up and give the, give the player a, you know, a better opportunity to hit a good shot. So I wrote a line, I said, Counter, I can't, well, the name of the company was Jacobson Textron. Nobody's ever heard of it. We, you know, John Deere and Toro are the big manufacturers over here who make lawn equipment. But the headline was, count on Jacobson for incredible lies. And the president said, we can't say that. We're an honest company. I said, yeah, I know. But once you got past the, the fear factor of what it was saying and understood the double entendre, the play on words, and that's exactly what the brief asked for. We cut grass for your fairways and the players who land the ball in the fairway, which is the objective of the game, are going to have a better chance of getting on the green with their next shot. So this is what you told me. That's what the brief said. I'm just delivering what you asked me to do. And it's scaring you, which means I've done my job. Right. If that's wishing just, made it so, such know, a great, means, such a yes, yeah, such a great example. Love it. Go on. So you're going to add? Well, I, I, yeah. I mean, one of the things that kind of a tangent to this, but one of the things that I I ask when I do my workshop, I ask a question of the creatives in the room, and I ask a question of the non-creatives, the marketers, the brand people, maybe they're strategists. I try to get a mix of participants in my workshops. But I ask the, the creatives, I say, over the course of a year, you work on X number of creative briefs. Could be five, could be 50, someplace in between, I don't know. Think back on those creative briefs. Tell me how many of those briefs were truly inspirational, really got you excited? One in 10, three in 10, seven in 10? What's your guess as to what the creatives would answer to that? I bet they struggled to answer. They would, yeah, they'd say, well, the number, uh, the number was so, so small, I would imagine. Yeah. Maybe someone will say maybe one, but it's fewer than one, mm. right? Mm. Very infrequently. Now that's not to say that the briefs were awful. It's just that the, they, were, they, were, they were not inspirational. Then I asked the question to the marketers, to the non-creatives. I said, of the, all the creative briefs that you've either written or contributed to, or then you sit in on the review of the work that comes back from the creative brief, how many times have you seen brilliant work in the first round? One in 10 times, three in 10 times, seven in 10 times? What do you suppose the marketers say? Probably again, closer to zero than 10. They're a little more generous. 
They'll say maybe two, the two or three times. So they're going to exaggerate, yes. Well, I think it speaks. I think it speaks to the talent of most creatives. That even if they have a terrible brief, they'll figure it out. They'll mm. write their own brief, because as a former creative, I always tried to hit a home run every single time I had a project. I was not going to fail. Now I didn't always hit a home run. Sometimes I hit a double, right? But I never struck out. Let's put it that way. I might have to go back to the well a few times and before the team came came up with something. But as I was intimating to you before. Uh, sometimes marketers, when I ask this question, will say, wait a minute, Howard, we don't even expect our creatives to come back with a great idea in the first round. We plan for multiple rounds. And then my response is, you're planning for failure. You don't even expect to get it in the first round. Now, I, I never promise my trainees that I'll teach them to write a brief that produces great work in the first round. Nobody can make that promise. But what I do say is, well, if you're doing four or five or six rounds, what if I could promise you could reduce that by one round? Six to five, five to four, four maybe to three, you can measure that. That's measurable in time. That's measurable in dollars. A little harder to measure it in morale, but you can do it. We're talking about ROI. If you give the brief the amount of time it's required that it deserves good thinking, you can get to, the, to your happy point. <laughs> in the process much sooner and save money. We just don't, we just, everything is a rush. Got to have it done yesterday. And we know that that deadline is false. It's just a fake deadline. So it's about giving the, the document what it deserves, collaborating, understanding that creatives are looking for inspiration. That's what this document is meant to do. And if you're struggling to write an inspiring document, ask your creatives for help. They want you to deliver them a document that they're going to to cherish, to, to work from. Because if we don't, we'll make up our own. And it may not be the best. We may, we may have our own ideas about things. And you don't want that. You don't want rogue creatives. Mm. So I just want to take you back a couple of steps when you were talking about the um, keeping things on brand or kind of working with the brand. And you've mentioned tone of voice um, as, as an example there. What happens then for, for a marketer looking to create a brief for some creative and they themselves are tussling with the way the brand is needing to evolve in this world of, you know, purpose-driven, value-driven, mindfulness, um, but very much this whole kind of sustainability push, the big kind of global green eco push where they might not necessarily have actually understood quite how to position themselves in that arena more strategically yet, but it does need to be part of the brand because may um, part of the brief because maybe this creative brief is for a new product or service launch, for example, into which this kind of green eco sustainability message or branding position needs to fit. So. Are you seeing that this is kind of becoming more complicated than it was maybe back in the day where, you know, as marketers, we were just selling features and benefits. Maybe it's a bit of an outcome for the customer, but that was the brief. It feels like the brief now intrinsically is more complicated because of all these additional kind of branding features that we are having to kind of adopt and adapt. I don't think it's more complicated. We're making it more complicated because we have this, I think, extraneous idea that our brand has a purpose beyond selling the product 
and making a profit for the company that makes the product. I think purpose brand advertising has led us astray. And I think too many creatives, especially creatives um, in our industry are no longer comfortable selling widgets. We're not comfortable selling toothpaste or pancakes, or breakfast cereal. We wanna sell social justice. We wanna sell a cause. Well, good luck on that because unless you're this most senior person in the creative department, you're not gonna get those nonprofit pro bono social justice projects. You're gonna to have to learn how to sell toothpaste. And if you're not comfortable selling toothpaste, you probably should be in another line of work because that's what we do. We sell widgets. As David Ogilvy said, if it doesn't sell, it's not creative. We're about selling stuff. Um, I'm a big fan of Steve Harrison and his book, Can't Sell, Won't Sell. He's been a guest on our show. And he said this far with far more, um, he's, he's been far more articulate in making this argument than I am right now. It's a politically charged position, but I agree with him. I'm in this business because I'm a capitalist. I believe in free markets. I'm contributing to the free market. I'm creating jobs. I'm creating my own sustainability by selling products. And I'm not afraid to say so. So I think these other issues are extraneous. I think they're interfering with our reason for why we're getting into this field. I got into this field because I love to write. I love to sell. I love to come up with creative ideas that will get your attention and to consider a product. And now I teach about this. And the brief is about coming up with the idea that will help you sell a product. Now, if you can find a way to do that with a cause, great. But I just don't think that's the reason why a lot of these companies are in business and they're attaching a cause to themselves and it becomes a false premise for buying the product. But that's just my opinion. So, so I, I'm I'm going to keep going with this one because this is interesting. So, so do you feel then that if a uh, a brand, because we've we've been constantly here focused on what's in it for the target audience, and ultimately it's the target audience needing to understand whatever the creative output is. They've got to get it. They've got to you know be driven to do the call to action, change the behavior, buy the product, whatever it is. Do, do you feel then that if a, as well, certainly here in the UK, increasingly so, um, you could argue millennials and Gen Z are, are very, very acutely aware of the kind of sustainability credentials, the the sourcing correctly of raw materials, etc. You know, all of those kind of um, sort of social and environmental governance um, sort of requirements um, as, as they're becoming now. If a customer says, I'm only going to buy products that meet these kind of levels of, you know, sort of sustainable um, credentials, then otherwise I'm not going to do it because I know um, your competitor down the road does, so I'm going to go and buy from them. Do, mm. do you feel that that is going to inevitably inhibit creativity because it almost feels we're being probably driven by an increasingly um, informed, increasingly powerful consumer um, who possibly potentially in the future isn't even going to want to consume because consumption could be argued as being, you know, at, at odds with planet, that actually a creative, no matter how good the brief, is going to be increasingly kind of constrained 
in their creative outputs because there's certain things you can't say because of greenwashing. There's certain things you can't do because the brand's going to frown on it. Do you, do you think we're going to find creatives becoming ever squeezed in their kind of sort of creative possibilities? I don't know. But my question is, who has the biggest, deepest pockets? Who has the biggest chunk of spending power? Is it the millennials? Is it Gen Z? I don't think so. My generation has the has the deep pockets. My generation, the baby boomers, and the and the group that came after me is the one that has the money to spend. They're the ones who are keeping the economy going. But of course, do brands pay attention to my age group? Well, that's another topic. I don't. I you know. I don't know. The biggest selling automobile in the United States is the Ford F-150 pickup truck. It's a $50,000 car. What's the average age group of that market? It's in the 50s. Ford knows that. Mm. Yeah. So do brands, so, brands know who they're all, if their brands truly know who their audience is and what the demographic is and what the age group is, they will talk to that audience and tell them what they and speak to them in a way authentically uh, to sell their product. And I'm not convinced yet that the younger generation that is, as you've identified, is the one that has the biggest spending power. Maybe they will someday, but not yet. And who are brands paying attention to? I think the smart brands are, are not, are, are li maybe they're listening but they know where the money is. They know where the, the consumer with the deepest pockets are. Mm. And, and ultimately it's a balance, isn't it? Because, you know, anybody who, as you say, um, is, is in business, you know, decision maker, board member, C-suite, whatever, you know, they're going to be very aware that it's, we do need to be more sustainable. We do need to have that within our <clears throat> sort of brand propositions that has to feed through in terms of all of the creative outputs that we do. But we are still here on balance to also be in business. So, so it's going to be this constant juggling between what we should say and what we need to say, what we're being almost guided to say by some elements of our customer base versus, yeah, but we've still got to make some hard-earned hard profit at the end of it. So it's interesting. I, I, yeah, I just wanted to explore kind of how you would see that playing out in a brief. And uh, yeah, it's, I, I just well, feel, it's, I feel it's coming. I feel, it, I feel it is something that maybe wasn't there 10 years ago, but certainly is going to be appearing, I think, as part of the, the overall kind of you know, brief checklist, if you like. There's nothing wrong with the creative brief the way it exists. You know, I've looked at probably a thousand different briefs, templates for a brief, blank, blank documents. And I've never seen a blank creative brief document that wouldn't work, that wouldn't give the creatives, if it were filled out well, what they needed. I've also seen many creative briefs that have been filled out that were awful. So it's not the, it's not the template, it's the contents in the template. The analogy that I like to use is, and whether you're whether you're interested in in you know in fine clothes or not, um, what if you were invited over George to Giorgio Armani's home for dinner one night, and he said, "Let me give you a, a little five minute 
tour of the house and he took you into his bedroom and he walked in, you walked into his major, his closet. To, and you want, you said, I want to see all the fine threads. I'm going to see his ties and his shoes and his suits. I'm going to feel the fabric. And you walk into his closet and it's empty. There's nothing there. Well, I'm sure because it's a beautiful home and he's got a few bucks. It's a beautiful closet, even empty. That's the equivalent of a blank creative brief. We don't go into Giorgio Amani's closet to see the blank, the empty closet. We want to see the clothes. So a creative brief is like an, an empty Giorgio Armani's closet, but we want to see it filled out well. I don't really care what the template is. I want to see a well-filled out, I want to see a thought-out creative document that's going to get me to the best point where I can come up with a brilliant idea to sell my, my client's product. That's the whole point. That's never changed. That's not going to change. That hasn't changed in decades. I get so many comments about, well, what about fixing this part of the brief? And what if we, ha shouldn't we have a, shouldn't there be a separate brief for, for social media? There should be a separate brief for Twitter. I said, well, unless you don't believe that the creative brief can produce an idea, yeah, then maybe come up with something else. But the point of a creative brief is to come up with an idea. That is its, own, its sole purpose. So that isn't, that's never going to change. And if, if you know, I'm, I'm kind of outside my lane here when we start talking about purpose-driven advertising and sustainability and all these other issues, because what I care about is what's the idea that's going to sell the product? The best companies are going to have the biggest contributions to the benefit of society who sell their products and fulfill their obligation to their shareholders, not their stakeholders. Mm. Yeah, and it's it's it is a, a really relevant conversation, I think, right now because you know I think a lot of people are tussling with not only the process, as you've you know very eloquently described it, and uh, you know the thousands of, of briefs that clearly you've been working with. Yes, I'm sure you've seen some absolute howlers of uh, you know ways of literally not to do it, or as you say, the blank brief, which um, to some extent, if you don't do a good brief is as bad a valuable as a, a zero brief anyway, um, all the way through to actually getting it absolutely right. I mean, is, is there a kind of almost like a fast track way of doing this? I, I'm, I'm not saying just cutting corners or anything like that, but are there kind of minimum features within a brief that you think it absolutely has to have features X, Y, and Z just to kind of you know, as an absolute minimum, the rest of it then is is nice dressing, good background information. Are there are there kind of like a minimum feature set that sure. you absolutely have to have in every single creative brief? In my workshop, I use two or three briefs that I think are outstanding. And these are real briefs written by real strategists for real agencies for real products. I, I actually also use a student brief because it is so good. It's not perfect. And we, we, we critique and, and, and analyze and dissect a student brief with different criteria than we do a professional brief. But we can still learn from this document. It has much to teach us. The student, by the way, that I, whose brief I use has gone on to become a professional strategist in our industry. But the fact that her brief was so good that I use it in my training speaks of her, her talent. But the idea, the idea that um, there's nothing out there that we can use is just false. There are great examples of briefs and certain minimums are, I think, identifiable. I use one brief that I love from the Richards Group, which is a legacy agency in Dallas. They did all the creative work for um, 
Motel 6 with Tom Baudet will leave the light on for you, an award-winning campaign from, it's an ongoing campaign, among many other things. And this brief is 127 words, not including the questions. 127 words, fits on one page. And it asks, and the first four sentences of the brief, I'm gonna have to paraphrase because I don't have it right in front of me, but the first four sentences on the brief are part of the template. It says, Trying to see if I can get my, I can't get my hands on it right in front of me. But the first four sentences say something like, um, "People don't read ads. People don't like ads. People don't listen to ads. What will make this one different?" It's a little mantra. It's a kind of a throwdown to the brief writer. Built into the template, it's like, "Come on, you got your work cut out for you." And that's the setup. After you read those opening four sentences, then you fill out the brief. It's like, okay, I like that. I like that a lot. It's a challenge to the brief writer or the team. And then every brief should ask questions. There should not be topic headings. Something as simple as asking a question will provoke a different mindset. It's something that people don't even think about until they look at the difference between one and then and another. Um, the other thing I like to, to point out is that a good brief writer will use verbs judiciously. They're very selective about the verbs that they choose. There's a difference between asking a creative to educate the audience versus romance the audience, right? Do we stop and think about which verbs we use? You should, the best brief writers do. So there are certain things you think about. What I like to think is that if we could build a common language for every brief, we'd spend a lot less time thinking about how to say it and more about what we wanna say because we have a common language, a common vocabulary. Uh, I like that some parts of a great brief are written in first person as if the audience, the consumer is talking to me, the creative. My, my partner, Henry likes to say, when he writes a brief and he writes the description of the customer, the target audience. He says he likes to write it in such a way that it's so descriptive, it's like a word picture, that the creative feels like it's a costume that he or she can put on and see the world through the eyes of the customer. I like that. That's but nice. what do we do? What do we do? We tend to do bullet points. We tend to do facts, household income, education, age group. And these don't draw a picture. These don't tell me anything about I'm going, to, I'm going to read something to you. If you don't, if you indulge me for just a second, this is, I love to read this in my workshop. I got this from a brief written by Leo Burnett, product goods agency in Chicago that did Tony the Tiger, among others. This is a description of the target audience for a product that we know very well here in the United States. It's a cold remedy medicine called NyQuil that we, you take at night. So this is the description of who are we talking to? It says cold sufferers. You know how you feel when you've got a cold that pathetic little inner child of yours suddenly wakes up and before you know it, you're moaning and whining. You've gone all whiny and wimpy, all snivel, snot and slovenly, red, raw, puffy eyes, pale skin, lank hair. Everything seems to be sagging. You feel like something from a Salvador Dali painting. You want to snuggle up in bed and damn it, you want your mummy. The writer goes on for two more paragraphs like that. And when I asked the creatives, what do you think of this? I know exactly who that is. That's me when I get a cold. So they're not describing you who 
this cold suffer is because there's no demographics, there's no age group. This is about what happens to a cold sufferer. This is a brilliant brief. Creatives will know exactly what they're talking about or who they're talking to when they read something like that. But do we take that amount of time to write a brief like that? Not enough of us do, but it's well within our grasp. It's not that hard, especially if you get a creative to help you. Mm, I love well, those I'm, examples. I'm, I'm rambling. Okay. I apologize. No, no, no. That that, that and again, I just it keeps going around in my head now. The whole thing: are we educating them or are we romancing them? I just the use of verbs, brilliant. I mean, I'm I'm a bit of a wordsmith sometimes when I can put my mind to it, and yeah, just it's fundamentally different. Just even just the use of one single mm -hmm. word can change everything. I think we just got to be more mindful in our brief writing, haven't we? This yeah, is I mean, how many briefs saying. have I? I can't tell you how many briefs I've seen where it says the objective to build awareness. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I um, also say one of the, if you look at the briefs that I use to teach my workshops, you will not see the question, what is the marketing objective? It's just not on that brief. Because I can tell you what the marketing objective is for every product from now until the end of time. In two words, sell more. Hmm. In fact, the joke I like to tell is I live to see a brief that says, Sales are too hot. We need to cool things off. It's never going to happen. So there are certain things on a brief that are not there because creatives don't need them, right? But when it comes to the objective, what is that objective? Be judicious about the verb you use because it tells creatives something different if you use the right verb, something as simple as a verb. Mm. You're, you're wetting the appetite of my audience here, Howard. You absolutely are. And they, they will want more. I can sense it now. You, well, you've mentioned, work, mentioned workshops. How, how, do, how do people get more of Howard? How do people learn more about Creative Brief Workshops? Well, my work website is creativebriefworkshops.com. There you what go. What a coincidence. Um, and, you know, if you're in the UK, you can hire me directly. And, uh, you know, I'd love to come to London. That's one of my favorite cities. If you want to bring me over to the UK, that's not practical for most people. But I do have, you know, we do our podcast. Uh, Henry and I do our podcast regularly. We bring in guests from the UK and, and, and uh, Europe. So it's not impossible to do virtual training. And I do virtual training on three different topics of my workshop. One is called what an inspired creative brief looks like. And we're going to take it a look at examples of creative briefs. Another is how to write a creative brief. I'll, you'll give me a, a, a case study and we will write a brief together in a workshop a third brief is a third workshop is how to write a single-minded proposition which is based on my second book some people think this is the hardest uh, part of the brief to write it does cause anxiety when you have to write that single most important thing and then the fourth workshop i do although i, I don't do it as often it is an advanced level workshop but i'd love to do it is okay now you've got your brief how do you deliver a great strategic briefing. So it's called strategies for an inspired creative briefing. Um, and then I have a, I do another workshop that's not done virtually. It's on public speaking because we do all kinds of presentations all the time. So I do a live in-person workshop um, where we practice improv skills just to learn how to think on our feet, to read the audience and to feel comfortable being in front of an audience. So you can, you can go there. If you're in the United States, if you happen to be a company who's, members, who's a member of the ANA, the Association of National Advertising, I'm on the faculty of their Marketing Training and Development Center, and you can engage me through your membership of the ANA. 
Um, and I also do some public speaking in the podcast. So there's lots of ways to reach out to me. And of course, being a podcast, sharing another podcast, what is the name of the podcast, Howard? Tell everyone. It's called The Brief Brothers. And Henry, you have Henry, to go Henry and check and I, this yeah. out. Yeah, you have Henry to check this out, this. people. It's so fun. Doing this now, we've got a hundred and uh, this week will be our hundred and sixteenth episode for over two two and a half years. We've been doing this. It's amazing to think that we could keep a topic as narrow as a creative brief going for over two years. But you know, Henry and I love to talk about it, and it just shows how important this topic is. I mean, I think that's the <clears throat> that's the key. When we were introduced, I I just felt. Oh, now I've actually met somebody who, you know, is a specialist in one of the biggest gaps I've certainly seen in my career. Um, and as you highlighted uh, about my webinar, we've come full circle all the way around because uh, we can all still, decades later, still be learning how to do this stuff better. So, Howard, it's been an absolute pleasure today. Thank you so much for your time. Really, really enjoyed this. And uh, I, I know that everybody's taken a lot of value from uh, your wisdom and, uh, and uh, all the examples that you've shared with us. Thank you, Neil. It's been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity.